This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Now, I want to lean into one part of that. You said, you know, neighborhood level DCs, distribution centers um, versus, you know, and we, we think about the transformation. One of the startups I'm involved in, uh, both of them actually are engaged with the implications for commercial real estate of the transformation to a low carbon economy and related to safety in COVID-19. Um, you know, and we think about retail and we think about real estate, we think about distribution centers. Distribution centers have more been hub and spoke models um, on the outskirts of cities or in areas like Columbus, Ohio, which has turned itself into a, you know, Midwestern distribution center with rail and uh, tra- um, highway links. And so they've got like all the big, all the big players have distribution centers there. But as we think about urban real estate, it's expensive, which has tended to lead away from warehousing. And that's what a distribution center is. It's a, it's a warehouse. So there's a really interesting model where the retail stores go away and become potentially repurposed for um, distribution center purposes. And is that what you're thinking about with these neighborhood level distribution centers? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. Um, I think what we're going to see is a a uh, refinement of the um, the layers in the hub and spoke, uh, and a, a continuing kind of um, segmentation, I guess, of of services and, and layers. So there's this sort of there's a continental layer, right, which is like national distribution. Then there are regional centers. Uh, and this is for items that are either going, you know, for next day or two or three day delivery, right? Then there's stuff that's that same day, and that's um, those those facilities have to be closer in, and there's sort of a sweet spot uh, that I call in the book the fulfillment zone because you know Amazon calls these buildings fulfillment centers, which I think is a great uh, term because it's really, you know what they're doing is they're fulfilling our desires for turning, you know, what we see on the screen into, into material, right? They're, they're swiping it off our screens into the real world. Um, and at some point swiping it back again. But um, so this is, this is kind of a new urban district and, it, and it's, it's a balance between being close enough that it can be, quickly and cost effectively moved to the customer, but far enough away that the land price, you know, makes sense. And there is, there is this zone, this ring uh, that in the U S is like about six to nine miles out from the population center where these things seem to have gravitated to. Um, 
there may be yet, and if you look at like food, there's you know yet another uh, layer of geography that's smaller than that, which is much more like neighborhood level. And I suspect there's there's going to be certain um, very very like short notice demand goods uh, that that may need to get stockpiled like at that neighborhood level as well. Um, like the kinds of things you would buy at like a corner store. You know, you're going <clears> to <throat> press a button, you're going to want it within five minutes. And there are, there are a bunch of startups that are actually building out that kind of um, on-demand e-commerce infrastructure right now, kind yeah. of under the radar. And it gets back to uh, what, what people expect in terms of their decision-making. I mean, Amazon Prime is creating the expectation that something we want to have on the screen will arrive the next day or today. Yeah, no, and I, I think, I guess what I'm saying is that the market is now continually testing how how far it can push that mm-hmm. to, I mean, the, the limit is, well, there actually is no limit because the limit is going to be that the things arrive before you know you want them. And that's within the realm of technical possibility. So one of the scenarios, kind of the nightmare scenario I lay out in the book is that if, if delivery, last mile delivery costs become cheap enough, we will probably see some form of direct marketing of delivery, right? So it'll, it'll basically be real physical spam products that will be sent to your front door, you know, via automated delivery that you'll have to refuse um, if you don't want them. Uh, like I can, I can certainly see, you know, if the costs fall to to a certain point, that 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 becomes so junk mail. You know, it's just junk stuff, and that that there is a price point at which that becomes plausible. So that's like that's like the theoretical limit. Um, and what you know, what is the what is the infrastructure that's needed to deliver that, and where does that live? Um, the question you raised is like, does does the hollowed out storefront uh, space that's going to be left behind um, by you know the, the sucking sound of, of e-commerce uh, is that going to fulfill some of that that need? I think probably yeah. Um, you know, some of it will be filled by services and stuff that will come in and take up that space. But I think I think there are some there will be some need for some local caching of of and local warehousing of stuff that's um, you know very very. Um, you know, quick, quick delivery. So it's not clear yet how that's all going to shake out, but I think it, it is clear that there's a, there's a big tectonic shift um, in how this stuff gets distributed. That's probably going to take a decade to shake out. It's got big implications for land use, big implications for transportation and streets big implications for retailing and local economies. Uh, but there's also some, and a lot of them are pretty scary, but there's also some, you know, really exciting opportunities. Um, and, and I think if communities can like get ahead of the ball and figure out what does it mean for them to have a low cost last mile distribution system that isn't just owned by a single company, you know, what if, what if small businesses can use that network at a similar cost with a similar, you know, set of rules as Amazon to move their own goods, can they start thinking about using it, you know, to link up 
uh, into virtual supply chains of their own. Um, so do local local manufacturers start uh, chaining up production lines using this very cheap way of moving stuff around? Um, you know, can restaurants, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, other other kinds of of local interests uh, find ways to use it? I mean, if you, if you look at like what it costs to deliver something uh, over the last mile in China, it's about a tenth of what it costs in the U.S. right now. And so this is a thought experiment, and it's partly because they built the network from scratch in a much more connected, much denser, uh, lower labor costs, right? But I think it's it's an indication of where the U.S. could be headed once the full force of automation kicks in. Um, you know, what what would it be like if if you know it was essentially as cheap to send something as it is to send a text message? Uh, it's an interesting you question. Really start to see some innovations. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at, um, I, I live in downtown, downtown Vancouver. I'm, you know, like you, I, I was an, a rural kid. I grew up in northern Ontario and northern Canada. And, you know, the first choice I had about where to move, I moved to the biggest city in Canada. And I've lived in Sao Paulo and I've lived in Singapore and I've lived in Toronto. And now I live in the densest part of downtown Vancouver. And I look out my door and, you know, wandering along the streets, I see, DoorDash and food cyclists and Uber Eats cyclists and electric tricycles with um, riders. And I see um, there's even a guy with an electric self-riding unicycle, not a, uh, a solo wheel, which I did own. I bought one in Singapore and used it for three or four years there and in Calgary. Um, but he actually does food delivery by electric self-balancing unicycle. <laughs> I know. He's okay. He wears a helmet and it's black visor. It's very future. Um, but we see in dense, the densest urban fabric, we see bike couriers, we see cab couriers, we see Uber couriers. And just those, all you're projecting is those patterns becoming more accessible and democratized to more people because the lower price point and the greater ability to just call them and say, I need this there. But it does. It gets back to the interesting question of. So um, you're worried about the impacts on on those people's livelihoods of automated delivery. Uh, personally, question? no, no. I'm I'm just saying that the pattern you're describing already exists in many places uh, in the world. It's just going to become more ubiquitous. Um, you know, yeah, I, I guess what I'm talking about is another order of magnitude. So yep. take take that and multiply it by ten yep. or a hundred. That's that's the volume of material movement I'm talking about. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a, an interesting question about um, whether piecework makes sense outside of specific types of creative endeavors or whether, you know, it's for that supply chain thought that you have. But, you know, I'll, I'll take the example you mentioned China, 50% um, of all the electric bicycles and electric motors that are used in everything in the world are built in a couple of cities in China. And there's one dense part of one city where, you know, if you, if you order anything, in bulk, um, five or 10 small, tiny firms will collectively fulfill that under the umbrella of a single larger firm. One will do the frames, one will do the motors, one will do the brakes, and just assembly line through a set of small shops, to your point. Um, you know, and so we'll start seeing more of those patterns, for sure. But the, um, you're not describing, in, to my mind, the future, you're describing an extension of today in certain classes of areas because of the cheapness. 
But it does get to an interesting question. Um, you know, let, you, we mentioned drones, specifically on a, a unmanned aerial vehicles, versus street drones, autonomous small, you know, sing, you know, single box or two box vehicles. I, I, I have a perspective on that simply because I've read FAA regulations, and you know, my dad was Air Force, so I tend to think about you know, regulation of what goes in the air. And I was a paraglider. Um, so I tend to think about regulation of what goes in the air more than most people. So I don't see flying drones in cities as much as street drones. Do you have a perspective mm-hmm. on that? On which one? Uh, flying drones versus road and sidewalk drones explicitly. Yeah, I mean, I write about both of them. Um, the sidewalk drones, I, I call them urban ushers. I think they're really important. Uh, I think they'll replace like entire categories of street furniture, whether it's parking meters or uh, signage or um, you know other other kinds of fixtures, uh, which you know urban designers will love because it'll it'll clean up a, a century's worth of crap that's been cemented into into the streetscape. Um, but it'll also allow for much more flexible management of streets, and I think uh, the public finance people will love it because it will allow for um, recouping the value that streets create in some some very interesting ways, whether it's dynamic pricing for parking or, you know, total complete enforcement of of traffic rules. It'll allow for uh, better tourist information. They'll be able to assist in an evacuation. Uh, you know, here in the United States, you could program them potentially uh, to do certain kinds of law enforcement with as little bias as possible, uh, you know, when they're dealing with people of different races. So, you know, there's all kinds of, of opportunities there. Um, and they could take the sort of routine workload off of uh, public servants, uh, you know, who are doing you know, on the streets so that they can focus on the, the really tough cases that require judgment, um, you know, and, and dealing with, with people in human situations. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, I didn't write about drones for all the reasons that you cite. Like, I think they're just a completely different class of um, vehicle. It's probably like a whole nother book. And the interactions between uh, unmanned aerial vehicles and cities are really complicated and problematic. Yeah, I had a conversation with some of the people at NACDO, which is the, the club of U.S. Uh, or North American city planning uh, officials. Uh, they were preparing their guide on autonomous vehicles, and they asked about drones. And they said, well, what should, what should we put in there about aerial drones? And I said, um, you know, really the only thing you, you need to consider right now is how you're going to set aside emergency landing zones in the public right-of-way for the next 50 years. Because if you don't do it now, you know, you're not going to have them when you need them. And these things are definitely going to come out of the sky at some point. You know, whether they're going to come out of the sky, you know, under control or partly under control, right? Like they're going to come down at some point uh, in a hurry. It would be better if they had a place to go. Uh, so I suggested a couple possible places where they might want to tuck those. Um, and they thought about it and they said, wow, like, that's just not something we want to deal with right now. Um, Understandable. I, yeah, I... So, 
so, I mean, it's, it's, it's just such a, um, David King at Arizona state university, you know, he points out, and I think I put this in the book that like, if we want to overcome NIMBY opposition to, to drones overflying in densely populated areas, we should start planting the tree canopy now so that in 20 or 30 years, it'll be there, you know, for, for the noise shield. Um, so even like, it doesn't take long to generate a list of like really almost impossible objections to, to their use. Um, but where I do um, talk about them, I think in a really favorable way is uh, towards the end of the book, uh, essentially thinking about what a, a municipal drone force would be like, almost a, like a civilian auxiliary force of drones. Um, I call them guardian angels. You know, a lot of what I was trying to do is just give these things names that um, will allow us to kind of attach ourselves to them in a way that um, would, would help us understand why we should why we should care whether these things ever ever exist or not. And you know, guardian angels are essentially like all all of the um, peacetime applications of of what military drones do today in the battlefield. You know, watching over. Uh, making sure things are maintained, uh, looking at disasters and assessing risk and guiding evacuations and providing emergency communications and imagery. Um, you know, there's so many things uh, that the drones could do for for cities in times of crisis. Um, and you know, they wouldn't even need to be sort of a permanent force. You could you could deputize commercial drones. Um, you know, and there's even people that have thought about how that might work. Uh, like if you had a, a drone delivery force, you know, they might need to have some kind of plug-in uh, with the city so that during an emergency, you know, they, they'd be on call or, you know, they might be collecting imagery when they're doing overflights of the city in exchange for air traffic control services. So there's all different ways to think about you know, how cities might leverage deployments of drones to get the things that they need that are in the public interest and not just have it be some some sort of huge nuisance, um, which it could very easily become. Yeah, and certainly I, I looked at Amazon and DHL's drone stuff and saw uh, exurban and suburban opportunities much more than urban opportunities, which is why I think that, you know, when you start thinking about smaller scale autonomous vehicles for package delivery. Um, it, it really gets down to what is the urban infrastructure that suffices for that? They're, they're not going in most cases, they're not going to be roadworthy. Um, if we think about, you know, a four foot by four foot cube with small wheels, it's not going to be sharing the road with truck cars and trucks. So what does it share it with? Does it share, uh, and this gets back to the question of in many places where they, there aren't complete streets, as you know, the street I live in, Richard Street in Vancouver is a complete street. It has you know, a sidewalk, it has a bike lane, and then it has car lanes that are separated from the bike lane by rows of parked cars. Um, I would see them in the bike lane where that exists, but there's enormous swaths of the urban infrastructure where that doesn't exist. So I see them competing for sidewalk space with pedestrians. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I call that whole class of, of uh, automated vehicles conveyors, um, sort of small, you know, like zero to 20 pound delivery vehicles. Um, because to me, they're kind of like buckets on a conveyor belt, uh, and which raises the questions like, what's the belt? Well, it's the sidewalk. 
uh, at least that's how their inventors have envisioned it. And and that's really undesirable from an urban planning point of view. Yes, it is. You know, sidewalks sidewalks are not your freight delivery infrastructure. They're sidewalks for people. Um, and they're usually for the most vulnerable people. Um, so we have to find another place for them. This is where I think it starts to get really interesting and where I feel like the book is is kind of doing the most uh, good in terms of challenging people's people's political alignments around uh, AVs. Um, you know, I, I think that there may be future alliances between bike, cycling advocates and companies like Amazon over um, taking, you know, lanes of streets that are used for auto traffic and having them be shared, as, you know, as an expanded bike slash conveyor space. Um, most of the cyclists, cycling advocates I talk to now, you know, are horrified by the idea of having to share bike lanes with, with an automated vehicle of any size, let alone one that's, um, you know, doing the bidding of, of a giant tech company. And, but when I say, well, you know, at the end of the day, you're both looking to take space away from, from private automobiles. And then, you know, the sort of eyes start to twinkle a little bit, but, um, I think that those are the kinds of things that are going to be fascinating to me to see where the space for you know, some new possibilities starts to open up. And um, to your point, you know, the, they don't have to move faster than a bicycle. Uh, the right. Most bike lanes are um, down at the 12 to 14 mile per hour level um, in terms of theoretical speed limits. A lot of that is being challenged by electric rideables of various sizes. You know, my, elect my electric skateboard goes faster than that. Um, not that right. So that's when the conversation starts to get interesting is that when it starts to get into the details of, of like, well, what would, what would make it acceptable for you to share, share that land with those guys? What if, what if it was a municipally owned conveyor network that, you know, women and minority owned businesses had free haulage on, right? And by taking this lane, we were able to provide that free, free freight service for those, those historically disadvantaged businesses, you know, like, then it starts to become really interesting. And, and, yeah. and by doing this, you know, we can give those businesses a leg up against, uh, you know, Amazon or a way out of the Amazon marketplace where they're going to be, you know, competing with this, this 800 pound gorilla, you know, pressing down on them. Um, it, it's, it starts to just open up a whole world of new possibilities and new kinds of alliances and new, new kinds of local economic opportunities. So that's where I start to get excited about this stuff. I think you know, it, it's the problem with this stuff right now is it's 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 getting wrapped up in the um, the it's it's big tech. You know, when the underlying technology, particularly when you get into the smaller, slower vehicles, isn't that complex. Um, it's actually it's pretty pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, the, the tech for autonomy is uh, very cheap as long as you don't buy into the, the hype about requiring LIDAR. Um, you know, the, uh, right now an iPhone can run an autonomous vehicle, a modern iPhone. Um, you know, it's got all the processor power to do advanced machine learning, visual recognition in real time. Um, you know, I've seen demonstrations, my buddy runs who does, who puts machine learning neural nets on iPhones for visual recognition. Mm -hmm. It's quite stunning. Um, it's got all the sensors for, you know, GPS and proprioception, you know, so you, if you can use an iPhone as the brain 
and the visual recognition stuff that's very commoditized. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think I think we're we're probably you know if these lockdowns get much worse, I think by the end of the year we'll see something like an open source, you know, like maker made version of the of the Starship conveyor pretty soon that can do like contactless delivery that, you know, you can 3D print a good bit of the parts and order the rest and slap it together. And the code is on GitHub, you know, yep. it's not, the pieces are there. I, I can imagine a pretty small team putting them together. Uh, but it does get down to the interesting question of, you know, uh, back to Tesla briefly, Tesla attempted to automate everything in their factories. They had to give up on one thing because packing fluff into a specific space was beyond the capabilities of robots. They had to bring in a bunch of humans to do that step. And putting stuff in, you know, the, the interesting question there is, you know, there are autonomous things for packing groceries, for picking and packing groceries, but they're still pretty rare and they're still pretty early. Um, you know, it's the distribution center automation. We, we've mentioned Amazon a few times. They have these really interesting um, automated shells that are just basically um, upright rectangles that drive themselves around the DCs, but they still require a lot of human beings. And COVID-19 is exposing the challenge of a centralized, typically poorly paid workforce, um, you know, especially in the United States without social safety nets, being required to go to work to put stuff into bins for people who are socially distancing. Um, so it's an interesting challenge because those DCs, the distribution centers or fulfillment centers, right now and for the foreseeable future, are still going to need human beings to do that sorting in uh, from bigger boxes into smaller boxes. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be doing that in closer rather than further proximity. And there's challenges around that. I mean, it's not something, you know, COVID-19, uh, like my upcoming report on machine learning and clean tech, your book didn't talk about COVID-19. <laughs> Um, well, because the book was written before COVID-19. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but what, what's your theory about that, the challenges of COVID-19 to the fulfillment and distribution center model? I mean, I think actually Amazon's proven surprisingly resilient to it. And I think the level of automation inside, inside the centers has cut down. I mean, compared to like meatpacking plants, they're stunningly more resilient um, because of, you know, the, the automation reduces the amount of human mingling. The, the, the robots are at the center and for the most part, the human beings are on the edges. And so it, it was, I think, a relatively, once, once the problem was grappled with a sufficient, sufficiently high level of management, they were able to space and maintain throughput and reconfigure the facilities in a far more effective way than um, you know some of the other pieces of the of the supply chain that have been like ruthlessly centralized, like the meatpacking plants, which are still struggling and still putting people in really high levels of risk to maintain production. You know, and, and it's pretty clear that Bezos is going to double down on automation to to further you know root out. I'm not saying that they're doing everything right, or, you know, but I think that it's it has proven to be more readily adaptable and more resilient um, than it appeared. They definitely screwed a lot of things up. So, 
you know, to that extent, I don't know. I mean, I think the systems perform pretty well and it's, it's moving an astonishing amount of material with astonishing high, high level of performance. I don't think anybody expected it to, to hold up as well as it has. I think that the, the, the real test for, for the U.S. supply chain is coming now as a sunbelt, the, like the entire sunbelt comes under the shadow right now of a really widespread uh, outbreak. Uh, so you've got like multiple, you know, dozen metro areas in some of the biggest farming states, you know, experiencing really astonishing levels of, of infection, you know, going backwards in terms of reopening. You know, you've had an air transportation system that's had many fewer flights. So a lot of that high value food hasn't been moving. Then you, you've got, you just, I mean, all different parts of the system that have been under stress for a long time are going to start to break. And you'll have farms in some of the most productive parts, trucking, processing plants, all sort of wobbling at the same time. And they were stressed you know. already. I mean, climate change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it can only bombs take so in much, Nebraska. Right? The trade war with China was impacting the a lot of farmers in Canada and the United States very badly. You know, they're right now. I think that uh, the bailout for farmers is close to the bailout for the big three automakers uh, in the Great Recession. You know, it's like lots and lots of money. Um, but yeah, the. It's the interesting question about how long we can stay. Resiliency allows us to reroute and adapt, but for how much and for how long? At what point does it just give out? It's an interesting and challenging question. Yeah, and, and I mean, so like it'll be kind of a weird state of affairs when, you know, the system for distributing like printer cartridges and like, you know, John Bolton's book will be operating pretty effectively, but no one in no one in North America is going to be able to get oranges or asparagus or, you know, chicken thighs or whatever. Like we're going to have like this total disconnect where the fairly heavily automated supply chain that's operating on these high value manufactured goods and the pretty manually, you know, powered one that's powering the stuff that makes people go is just completely shut down so um, you know so it'll be interesting to see whether whether one learns from the other so anthony we've got a, only a few minutes left and i want to respect your time obviously fascinating conversation so far but um i, I kind of want to close out on on the positive note what's the most you know you spend a lot of time researching to create this book what was the most interestingly positive thing you saw oh my god there's so many yeah i'm having a hard time um top three well picking three is harder than one <laughs> <laughs> uh you know I, so i think i think the the automated transit vehicles is probably the thing i'm most excited about and the opportunity to reinvent buses um of all shapes and sizes buses move more people each day than pretty much any other kind of vehicle on the planet. And the further south of the equator you go, the, the more vital they are. Yeah, I, I was, especially, yep. Yeah, I mean, I was a strong believer in this before COVID and the depression. 
Uh, I think this is even more true now because cities basically have no money. If you're going to build transit to move the next couple urban billion, it's going to have to, you're not going to have money to build rail lines and um, this will be the solution. So being able to chain up coaches into trains, uh, software trains that can, you know, essentially be an automated BRT system, not only to, to move big numbers of people, but to be able to pick up your transit system and take it with you when you have to move your, your city up out of the floodplain in 50 years, uh, I think is, is a real opportunity. Um, being able to break buses down into smaller vehicles, what I call driverless shuttles. Um, I think that, you know, the, the eight to 12 person automated minibus may be like the Model T of the 21st century, you know, the kind of like iconic um, vehicle. Uh, that, you know, really just sort of overruns the world and um, helps us move around, have convenience, have mobility, but also reduce our carbon footprint uh, and stay relatively kind of densely populated, but still have some some, some elbow room. And then the, the, the stuff that's going on with the, the personal electric vehicles uh, and what automation could do um, in terms of you know, allowing us to, to think, and this is again where the, you know, obviously the political alliances really start to get interesting. You know, is the next generation of urban designers going to be getting excited, not about building walkable neighborhoods, but like scootable uh, neighborhoods? You know, you were talking about earlier about the distances that people can commute on electric bikes versus regular bikes. Well, you know, what kind of, what kind of towns do we plan around those capabilities? Um, I know for a fact that the, those those things are not being taught. Um, most students are being taught that, you know, you build a rail line, you have a yardstick around that with which people are willing to walk, and you set up the incentives to concentrate the development in that radius. But we know that these technologies are out there. We know that people want them. They're going to buy them. They're going to use them. And... You know, are they going to use them to scoot out to, you know, housing developments that are outside that planning area? And uh, how is that going to, you know, change our expectations? So I think we need to start thinking about these things. Yeah, and uh, having been to Copenhagen, where, you know, 47% of the people commute every day by bicycle, you know, it's, you know, you end up with bike lanes that are the same width as the car lanes. Mm-hmm because you, know, you end up with that many people. And certainly every every fight uh, around bike lanes I've seen around the world has always ended up with no actual impact on car congestion um, because more people divert. I mean, the Manhattan example, which you're probably familiar with, where the complete street was put on and car throughput actually increased slightly. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have these tremendous opportunities now to re-envision urban transit. And back to the COVID thing we talked about a lot over this hour and a half, a small vehicle that is sterilized with UV light um, every hour in a regularly participate regular period, it starts to really give people comfort. You know, just your, your, um, what did you call it? Your urban shuttle, your pod? Um, I was thinking Uber Pod um, shows up and it's got a just sterilized sign, right? So you can have comfort that it's COVID free at that yeah, moment. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, and <laughs> and it's not a bus; it's a small thing. Yeah. It's um, possible, it's Anthony. Possible. 
Thank you so much for taking the time today. Your, your book's now available, Ghost Road, Beyond the Driverless Car. I think it was literally last week that it um, uh, launched. Yes. And uh, it's available on Amazon.com. And, you know, just um, if you actually still buy physical books as opposed to use Kindles, you could order one and have it delivered to your home, but not by an autonomous vehicle at this point. Um, yes, and if people want to buy from local booksellers, there's a link on ghostroadbook.com to uh, bookshop.org, which is a great portal for local booksellers as well. There are still local booksellers? <laughs> yes, they're all over the place. Um, Anthony, once again, thank you so much. Uh, you know, urban residents and uh, urbanist and residents at Cornell Tech, um, go buy his book. It's very interesting. And a lot of it isn't about autonomy, but about the changes in society and regulation and business, which autonomy will lean into and enable. So fascinating look in the future. Thank you again, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.